Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cyber Inspiration Podcast. My name is Evgeny. I've been around cybersecurity for the last 20 years, and I have a lot of experience working with a variety of cybersecurity vendors. My main work is vendor consulting and cybersecurity advisor. As part of my passion in technology and cyber, I always intrigued to learn how company starts. I started the podcast to understand the thinking process and what motivated people to start their own company. This podcast is also affiliated with Security Architecture Podcast. I have Kat today to talk about her journey and her product and her services in cybersecurity. And it's always nice to have a fellow Canadian on the podcast as well. Kat, can you please tell me about yourself and your company? Absolutely. First, thank you so much for having me. I'm Kat Code. I'm an engineer by trade. I spent over a decade working at BlackBerry and I was there when BlackBerry was the best phone and then iPhone came out and everyone jumped ship to iPhone and I realized people didn't understand privacy. So that motivated me to create my own company around privacy, which is called Binary Tattoo. So binary for the language of all things digital and tattoo for the permanence of everything we put online. And I have been doing privacy and cybersecurity consulting and training for the last nine years. Thank you for the introduction. So around, what, nine years ago, when iPhone 3 came out, or whatever the iPhone came out, you decided to jump ship and have your own company. And you already mentioned that you were concerned about privacy. But what was going on in your mind besides BlackBerry being kind of dying slowly as a phone? A little of both. So... Part of it was the awareness that people didn't understand. Again, what data were you putting out there? Where was it going? How is it being used? Like it was pretty obvious the way we had structured an architect. So I was working as an architect for the handheld for BlackBerry. And we had specifically architected it so that the applications would not be able to touch data from one app to the other. And then when we saw iPhone came out and people were like, oh, this is so seamless. I can download this weird app from online and then it automatically has my contacts. And so that was really the, but you don't want it to automatically have your contacts or your location. And people really didn't understand that. So, so that was part of the motivation. The other thing for me was very much the tech world at the time, maybe the tech world still, it was 60 plus hours a week easily. Tech is extremely demanding. And uh, BlackBerry, we originated the whole always on demand. And so we originated the whole, let me email you at eight o'clock at night and expect an answer back before tomorrow morning so I can get my work done. Especially when you were managing others, because if they message you, you need to message them back or else they're stuck in their work. So we had flexibility in hours, but if I stopped working at five and I had people who were working until eight, I felt obligated to answer those messages. So a lot of it was, I can't keep going on this hamster wheel of 60 hour weeks. I need out of that space. I want to do something different. And for me, it was like, what do I do that's different? And I'm able to break down technical concepts to people who aren't always as technical. And so that's where I thought I could be of most help. It's a rare skill. It's a very hard skill as well. So thank you for doing this. You had an idea. You were thinking about this. Before you start your own company, you probably need to go and do market research and say, okay, people actually going to buy my idea. What was the next step? You will hear this often and many times. It takes a long time to build a company and you pivot a little. Originally, I wanted to offer training and seminars. That was the first thing was, could I train parents? Could I train children? Could I train companies? And so that's where I had started. But what I realized then was that parents wanted to know what their kids' online identities looked like. They wanted to know what children were posting online. Some adults wanted to know what they themselves looked like online because they suddenly realized that they were being searched and they had no idea what anyone else could find about them. So one of the first things I did within the first year is I ended up joining a business accelerator to see if I could create a product that would look through all of the APIs that we had online for social networks 
and pull all of the data that was available online in a search using open source intelligence and then put it into a report. And what made it different for me was, again, I like the educational component of things. It wasn't just a, hey, here's your photo that I can find. It was, here's your photo and you have a child in it. And here are the risks of including a child in your profile photo. Or here's your address and here are the risks of having that posted online. So originally, because I came from the software world and I was in architecture and development, my plan was to create software and grow a company as a software company that would do these searches and these reports to help people better understand their data and where it was online. This was more B to C versus B to B. So basically consumers. And when you were doing the research, did you check with people? Were they actually willing to pay monthly fee or report fee to buy this data? I was doing a lot of speaking engagements for parents because it was just a missing service. And as a parent myself, I realized that this was like a needed thing. So I was doing a lot of local schools and then at the end of the schools, people were coming to me and saying, can you search my child for me? How much would you charge for that? So I was actually doing that as a service on its own. And people were willing to pay a lot of money for it because they didn't know how to do it themselves. And there was a lot of value for them to help their kids, especially children who were applying to big sports teams, like colleges and universities. They really needed to know what they had online. And so that was a big draw for them. The folks that are listening to us and maybe don't know all the risks, from your perspective, what will be a problem and a risk to put a picture with your kids online? So we have a tendency as parents to define our children's online identity for them, and that's unfair to them. The, one of the reasons why we can get into it, I actually stopped doing that as a business model and went more corporate, helping the companies collect less data, was because I actually didn't like what I was finding, especially with teenage girls. I would be looking up these girls and they would have accounts full of photos in bikinis. If you look up statistically right now, people will post Instagram videos and then you can actually pull the statistics behind them if you know how to do the analytics. The people who are watching the videos of young girls in bathing suits and gymnastics leotards are not other parents who are interested in someone else's kids. It's often older men. It's not the audience that people think they're posting these photos for. And so adding a child to your photo, it's a low risk, but it is a possibility that someone might be using that photo for something nefarious or that you don't want them to use the photo for. But it's also, again, defining your kid's identity. Like one day someone will search your child and have that photo. And you know what? Maybe your kid doesn't like that photo of themselves, or maybe they didn't like the way they looked then, whatever it is. At this point in time, the way technology is evolving, I'm also always concerned about facial recognition. So if you've got pictures of your kids out there that can be modeled over a few years, then they can be fairly accurately predicted as teenagers or even older. And then if their faces are captured in a lot of these programs that do facial matching, then you might be able to match them back given that they had been tagged in a previous photo. So a deep fake algorithm can be even more accurate. Yes. And I mean, I clearly edge on the, <laughs> on the side of paranoid just because of my experience in the industry. So I'm always like, it's a low risk, but it's a risk. So to me, it's like, if you're posting a profile photo and you don't have to include a child, don't include a child. I had my kids in my profile photos at one point. I have since pulled them and deleted them. I'm sure Facebook still has them in a reserve somewhere on a server, unfortunately. It's never too late to pull things. It's unfortunate, though, that a lot of these systems and services already have them stored. And I think by agreeing with space, we actually own the photo as well, because we had a discussion with people 
if I put a picture of my child and when they become 18, can they have the rights for the picture? It's kind of very debatable because Facebook probably already owned the rights for the picture. Photos are really weird. Like you are at the mercy on a day-to-day basis that somebody isn't going to take a photo of you and post it. It's a very bizarre situation we're in right now with social media. Could someone come in a change room and take a picture of me and post it online? They could. Is it legal? No, but they could. And then what am I supposed to do? The photo's out there. It's just why add your child to the digital space? Why create that digital identity for them? Okay, let's go back to the product and development. So you start to develop the product and you realize from a different reasons you don't want to go continue with the product development. Or there was a technical problem as well, I'm wondering. Yeah, there was. There were both. So just from like a feel-good problem, it made me sad. I'm an empathetic person and it just made me really sad to see some of the photos that were out there. But in addition to that was right around the time in 2014 when a lot of the social networks finally figured out that they had to shut their APIs down so that everyone couldn't access all the data that was in there. So prior to that, you were able to go to Twitter and say, hey, I have this person named Cat Code. Here's her email address. Give me everything that's associated with it. And Twitter would just send that information back, including my birth date, any locations it had associated with me. It had the whole bundle of info. And then again, like Facebook, Instagram, all of them started closing these gates because people were rightfully complaining that the data shouldn't be funneled out of these these social networks, which is just as a side note, anyone who was on the social network prior to 2014, all of that data is somewhere now. And that's why we have data brokers, because the data brokers were able to comb these social networks up until that point and pull so much data from them that they already know that your LinkedIn account is linked to that Twitter account is linked to that Instagram account, right? And it's all a big circle to them. But at this point, it would be very difficult to type in in the same way and get a a full report of someone's, all their social identities. But we do still have a way to do takedowns. There are still some API available. I guess Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter allow certain companies to actually do takedowns or use the API. They do, but those APIs are different now. They don't give you a free-for-all of information. They'll give you anything that's public. For example, if your friend list is guarded on Facebook, it won't give it to you anymore, but it used to. Regardless of, if, of what your privacy settings were, it would give you the full complement of information. Now it says, you know what, this person's privacy settings are set. I can only give you this. Or by consent, if you sign up for certain apps, it'll allow you to access certain things. Okay. So you decided that you're pivoting from a technology perspective and kind of moral perspective. And this was after you've been working how long on the business? So I started with the searches. And then it was a year later where the APIs had kind of fallen apart. And I had done the searches. And what was interesting to me actually was an investor at one of these pitches. I did lots of pitches. People liked the idea because it was part of an incubator for businesses, for tech businesses. So investors liked the idea because it was something that was missing in the market and because it had the educational component, which honestly today I still have never seen. But uh, one of the investors came up to me and said, I don't think you're a product. I think you're a service. I think you need to teach people because that's what you love to do. I don't think you actually want to build a tech company. It really hit home because I had left the full-time tech space to get out of the rat race. And then I was pushing myself back into building another company. And the way that tech and startups work, everybody wants you to build fast. They want you to sink a ton of money in, grab it. Like I had people telling me they could set up call centers and get this many developers on it. I'm like, but I don't want that. I don't want to be managing people 60, 80 hours a week. That's why I left the last job I was in. So when the APIs stopped working and we had to find all sorts of workarounds, that was kind of it for me because I said, you know, I've spent a lot of money and then I had another wonderful advisor with the whole sunk cost fallacy, right? And said, just because you've spent a lot of time and money on something doesn't mean you need to keep spending time and money on it. Because it was very difficult after that much, after a whole year and a lot of cost to have the prototypes built and everything to step back and say, 
I'm not going to keep funneling anything into this because it's not the direction I want to go in. So those searches continue to happen manually. Like there's companies that do it manually, but again, I've never seen the educational component. So I said, you know what? You're right. I am just, I'm going to merge away from that. And I am just going to work specifically with companies and with people and help them better understand privacy. Is this, you decided, okay, I'm going to hire a team. I'm going to do it as a team or as a private person. Just me. At BlackBerry, I had 75 people reporting to me. So it was one of those things where I would manage until five o'clock and then everyone else would go home and then I would get my work done for the day. And uh, I didn't want that. The other thing is with a young family, I realized some weeks were great and some weeks, you know, you'd have a sick kid and this is pre-COVID, nothing was online. <laughs> so you were babysitting your child and I realized I needed the flexibility and I wanted the flexibility in my life. I thought if I can build a company now as the consultant offering services from the ground up, then I could control my schedule, control my time and have a more flexible balance between work and life. Yeah. So you decided you're going to kind of transition from a product company to a service company with still with some kind of a minimum product component because you wanted to build templates, you wanted to build educational material. What happened next? So I was largely serving in a training and education capacity. I was doing a lot of like lunch and learns and seminars and keynotes for companies and then also continuing to help parents because it was a gap in the market. And so I was doing that. And then GDPR came. GDPR came in 2018. So in 2017, companies that I was already working with said, hey, you know, you know a lot about privacy. And I understood regulations because I had to explain how regulations affected their privacy training and what they were doing. I had a lot of companies come and say this GDPR, which for anyone who doesn't know is the General Data Protection Regulation for Europe. What do you know about GDPR? And I realized, you know what? Very few people knew anything about GDPR. It's kind of being ignored. So I really threw myself into understanding what it was asking for, how it applied to companies, how it applied to individuals, and how companies could best prepare for it. So then, although I continue today to also do training and seminars, I started to develop this world of assessments and, like you said, templates. People were missing. They had policies that were very security-oriented. Everyone's got InfoSec policies, but they were always missing privacy components. People's privacy notices on their websites were often missing a lot of information. And GDPR came in with all of this guidance to say, you know what, here's what you need to do, but very little hand-holding to say, here's how you need to get there. So... This is where I thought, I understand privacy, I understand design and engineering, and so how can I best help companies take their products and services and make them privacy first so that they are better protecting the data that they're collecting and they're better protecting the individuals they serve? Yeah, with all the different tasks and different companies and parents you're helping, how do you stay on top of all the tasks? Good question. Last year, actually, when COVID hit, I stopped doing parents because if I couldn't do them in real life, it was I did the odd one online. But my real thing was, can I come and I show up at a school and help people and answer their questions? And as soon as everything happened online in 2020, I had friends who had better setups who were excellent leaders and I funneled that business over to them so that they could do it virtually from other places. And I basically doubled down on corporate because the need there had grown significantly. And as you and I had previously discussed, there are way more companies in need of this kind of privacy help than there are people who deliver the services. There's lots of tools online that will promise like one-stop shop for compliance for privacy. And it's not possible. It just doesn't exist. That's like saying, use this one tool for all your health needs. It's not possible. It could probably track your heart rate and your sleeping and it can, sure could help you, but it's not a full holistic approach. So I have evolved from really focused on helping people understand where their data was 
to helping companies stop the collection of unnecessary data and the dissemination of unnecessary data from the other side, because most of it in that case is not malicious. It's just, it's misunderstood. Companies don't know how not to collect it or who shouldn't be accessing it. And so I, I feel like I'm kind of gone to the root of the problem. And that's where I'm sitting now. You've been around for quite a long time as a service company. If you can go back to the beginning, what would you recommend for CAT seven years ago to do differently? Oh, I wouldn't have wasted that year on on trying to develop a product. I think a lot of that for other people that are looking to start a company was being told what I should do instead of looking at what I wanted to do. I had a lot of people who were saying, you know how to run a dev team, you know how to run software. And especially as a woman in tech, I had a lot of people saying we need more role models of women in tech who are running companies. There's so few of them in our city. Can you please run a tech company? because that would show other women that they can run tech companies. And so that wasn't the right reason for me to run a tech company. So I think that would be a little more selfish. <laughs> but what it, you really have to do what's right for you, right? You and your family and your situation and not what other people think would be beneficial. So if I will tell you that there is a way to do what you wanted to do eight years ago, seven years ago, because of maybe something else, would you build it? Would you want this tool to exist for other people to help them? I would love to see the tool exist. I don't want to be the one behind it because again, I didn't want to deal with the growth. I didn't want to deal. Even now I don't have people, I don't subcontract. I will happily, if somebody contacts me and I don't have bandwidth to take them as a client, I will happily recommend one of several other colleagues that I know are good to take their business. I, but I don't subcontract because I don't want to be in that position where that person's suddenly sick or away. And I now have to pick up their work. It's just not what I'm interested in right now. So I do my work and I know what's on my plate, but yeah, it's hard. I would love to see that tool. I would love to see better education for the average person on what they're doing for sure. I hope somebody maybe could create it because it's definitely needed sometimes to teach people and show people the impact of what they've been doing and how the potential can affect their life in the future. Yeah. Great. We have this section called dark side and we kind of spoke about it a bit. And dark side is where you show the horror stories. And of course, nothing confidential. Is there anything you would like to share? that will maybe intrigue people to hear? Well, I mean, it's not even a horror story. It's just, it takes years to make money. I think that's something people really need to talk about is it takes years. And I was in a privileged position, which I acknowledge where I was in a two income household. So not making money for a few years was okay for our house. But I know there are people that are like, they. if you need to make money today, then starting your own business is not the way to do that. It will take a long time to break even. Uh, statistically, I've heard two to five years is usually when you make money. I think it took me three. It took me three years. And I had grants I had put in my own time for my product, but I had grants to build it. It was sad for me to have seen that much money funneled into a product that I still have the code for that it was never built. So I think that's part of it. It's going to cost you money. And there's that whole, you need to spend money to make money. Yes and no. I see people start companies by spending like $10,000 hiring a brand manager to make t-shirts and notepads that have their logo on it. Like that's all well and good but I would use that money to actually build content, build a brand for yourself, not a visual brand, like actually build yourself as a brand. I think that's the dark side that not enough people talk about because you see all these like, oh, make $100,000 in three years, but then don't make money for the first three years. <laughs> no one says that. That's the worst. I hit a point after the code failed for me, which I do talk about, I was so stressed out about what to do and how to fix it 
that I had what was labeled adrenal failure, which is just basically I had physically stressed myself out so much I could hardly function for a full day of work where everyone's like, you need to rest. And I'm very type A and I'm like, I don't do rest. And they're like, you have to rest or you don't get better. And that knocked me out for a good three weeks. There were three weeks where I was working a couple hours a day and that's it because it's the only thing I had capacity for. So you'll hear that a lot from business owners or anyone who's put themselves out there to do something like I had to hit the bottom before I realized that's not where I wanted to be. And I had to fix that. I had to put myself on a track where things weren't going to cause me that much stress. And was it stressful to have all the APIs disappear? Sure. But it was, I'm a problem solver. I'm an engineer. That's what I do. But this wasn't a problem I wanted to solve. It was the realization that this isn't going to work. And I don't care enough about this thing to spend the time and energy to try and find an alternate way to do it. I'm just done. Yeah, great. Kat, thank you very much. A lot of good advice. I really was happy to hear your story. It's a very interesting story with a lot of insight as well and on a technology level and a personal level as well. So thank you very much. You're welcome. For everyone who's listening, please continue listening. Subscribe to the podcast and we'll talk to you in the next podcast. Thank you.